If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We've been working our way through that. It's been an interesting section because ultimately the author seems to be kind of ramping up. Oh yeah, if you don't have a Bible, just slip your hands up. I should grab one for you. Uh, we, we've, been, we've been talking kind of 12 started after this big faith journey out of chapter 11, which just before chapter 11 was a reminder that we need to persevere at the end in chapter 10, verse 36. And we see, we see the value of, hey, we need to persevere. And then he goes into this huge onslaught of all the pillars of faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then he comes out into chapter 12. And a few weeks ago, we talked about this, this race, this divine race that we're on. We are, we are on this course. We're running this race. And he, he challenges us, encourages us to lay aside everything that, every sin that so easily entangles and snares us and, and to, to drop the weights and, and run the race with endurance, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, both our, our founder and our perfecter of our faith, our completer of our faith. And, and then he goes into this wrestling, telling people, like, look, you're, you're, you're going to be, you're going to experience hardships. Life is going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. And it's the Lord that's disciplining you. But don't, don't worry. He's disciplining you because it's for your good. And he wants to bring about holiness in you and completeness. And he wants to, he wants to continue to work in you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. And so he kind of comes out of that. And then he, he comes to this section, which seems like an interesting pause. And it's, it's really brilliant because we have to remember the context of these individuals. These are Jewish people that are starting to experience persecution for the kind of the first time. We've seen out of chapter 10 that some were getting imprisoned and, and we see some of the wrestling they're having. But because of the persecution that's happening, some of the Jewish Christians were starting to slide back into the religious system. They were, they were trying to go back to the sacrificial system and, and appease their Jewish brothers and sisters because of that. And they're starting to experience this persecution. And so he comes into this section where he lays out two very vivid images that I, that I just, I fear they fall drastically short for both of us, or both of them for all of us today. There, there are two images that, that to these people, these are images that were ingrained in their minds. They've been talking about it for their whole life. It's been told to them by their parents, by every other, every, every time they go to the synagogue. These are, these are images that they just, they just knew inherently inside of them. And so he comes to this, and it's really interesting, like, why does he do it here? And I, I think it's brilliant because in a lot of ways, he's recognizing, like some of us recognize, that following the Lord is really, really difficult. You know, I challenged a lot of you guys last week. I said, hey, let's, let's strive for peace with one another. And I challenge you, I encourage you to not allow bitterness to, to, to defile our community and to, to actually let the Lord cut away those things. I am so encouraged by the amount of conversations that were had this week. Where I heard of people that were having conversations, I didn't hear always the names, but people that, that came and said, hey, I need help. How do I navigate this conversation? People truly trying to walk in the freedom that they were given through Christ. And so, so he's, he's, he's recognizing that this is a difficult thing, and so he's trying to give them some motivation. And, and my, my fear is, is, is that today, even as I talk about this motivation, that it might fall flat. And so, so my hope would be that out of this scripture today, you guys would be just blown away by what, what God is trying to do as he's preserved this text for us today. So chapter 12, verse 18 is where we are. We'll read all of it, and then we'll dive in. Four, okay, stop for a second. Four. Just coming out of don't be like Esau, just coming out of strive for unity, just coming out of the idea that, that we're going to have to persevere to the end. There's a way that we are to, to pursue holiness, even though God has deemed us holy through the work of Jesus Christ. And so just coming out of it, it says, now four, four, and this is such a, such a huge thing, four, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. 
If even a beast touches of the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so really you see two pictures. There's a lot of words that are used here, but he's in 18 through 21 and 22 to 24, we see basically dichotomies, two drastically different images of God, even though it's the same God. And what he's doing, even though he doesn't say it, he's, he's referencing Mount Sinai. When, when Moses goes up on the mountain, and we see this in Deuteronomy and Exodus, and he goes up and gets the tablets, and there's the, the, the Israelites that have been wandering through the, through the wilderness for so long, and he gets the laws of God and comes back down. This is the picture he's talking about. And in that setting, everyone understood, the people of God, the Israelites knew that they couldn't touch the mountain that even Moses went up to talk to. That even if a beast had touched it, even if a deer had accidentally walked up there, the, 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 the rule was that that deer had to be stoned to death. And it's this, this profound picture. And there's, there's seven real images that he gives in this text. It's, it's um, a, a, an image of, of gloom, of darkness, of storm, trumpet blast, voice speaking, burning with fire, a mountain that can't be touched. He's, he hits these seven different things that basically make out the mountain at Mount Sinai during the time of the Israelites being in the wilderness. And every single Jewish person heard that, and they, they knew that this image, even one scholar says this, he suggests that the recital of these terms in measured cadence, when the homily was read aloud in the house church, would have created a verbal impression of the awesome majesty of God who made his presence known at Sinai. This cadence, the way that this was spoken, every single person in that setting knew that was something was very true. God is incredibly majestic. He's incredibly powerful. He's big. He's not to be trifled with. And we have no right to be in his presence. And that was the image of the old covenant. And the, old, the, the author here has done a massive work in a, kind of a theological basis all the way through the first 10 chapters showing how the old covenant isn't as great as the new covenant, but both served a purpose. And he's saying, look, we see God in this profoundly huge, majestic image. And there wasn't, for us today, and the reason why I think this falls short, most of us, it's not common for every single person to believe that God is meant to be feared. But in this day and age, and there were probably plenty of people that didn't, but in this day and age, the overwhelming number of every single person knew that God was a God who meant to be feared. We are to fear him. He is holy. He is not meant to be trifled with. Using his name in vain wasn't something that slipped out when you stubbed a toe. Like this was a, there was a reverence to a God. They recognized the majesty and the grandness and the, the profoundness and the awesomeness and the majestic ability of who, how powerful God is and how big he was. And they didn't, they didn't. They knew that that wasn't to be messed with. They knew that that wasn't to be to trifle with. There are some seats up here in the first four rows if you guys want to come forward. And he recognized how, how big it was. And so every single Jewish person, every single Jewish person knew that God was big. And so when they talked about this image and they talked about the, the, the fact that this image was, was who God was, it, it, it drove home this event of terror, this recognition that God was to be feared. And every single Jewish person knew of that God. The other thing that this does. It communicates a God that is very impersonal. 
Even though we see the mediator of Moses and we see him, him coming and trying to make a covenant with his people, and, and he does, he makes a covenant and it stands, follows up the Abrahamic covenant. We see all of these things happening, even though it's place, it still feels like God is at a distance, very impersonal. Don't touch the mountain. Don't even come close to it because if you touch the mountain, you're meant to die. In fact, even the Israelites, when they heard God speaking to them, they pleaded out of fear, no more, don't speak to us, please. There was a, a reverence that is just non-existent in the church today amongst the Israelites in that day. There's a place for it. There's a value to seeing God as big as us being unworthy and small. And the Israelites saw that. And so out of nowhere, he comes to this image. He comes to this visual aid after talking about all the struggles and the discipline and the trials and, and strive for unity and, and deal with stubbornness so that nothing defiles you. He comes to this image. Why? And I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant because most of us today have the same wrestling that even the Israelites or the Jewish people in Jesus' day still struggle with, which is God is meant to be feared, but how in the world do I spend relationship with him? And the problem is, is that if we start striving for unity, like I challenged you guys last week through the text, if we, start, if we start striving to ask the Lord to really cut away any bitter root in us, if we do it out of motivation of God to be feared, I think we miss it altogether. God is, is to be feared. Don't, don't get me wrong. That is absolutely true. But the author here does something brilliant. He gives us another mountain. He talks about Mount Zion. In verse 22, he goes to this, but we have come. We have not come is the first, is, is verse 18, but we have come is verse 22. What have we come to? We've come to Mount Zion. And to most of us, Mount Zion isn't, isn't necessarily something that we understand, but Mount Zion and the city of Jerusalem are so closely asso associated in biblical times that they're basically conceptually synonymous. They're representing the dwelling place of God. I wrote it this way. Mount Zion was the site of the Jebusite hill that David captured and made his royal residence for seven years. Right? This, is, this is where David was. And then in that, we see that in 2 Samuel. In 1 Kings, we see that it's, it's the hill that the temple is built on. So we know that, that this is where this happens. And then, and then Jerusalem as a whole, Israel gathers for worship in Zion because the Lord loves it. Psalm 78 and 87. He made it his dwelling place, 1 Kings 14, Psalms 9, Psalms 48, Psalms 74, Isaiah 8. We see that God is dwelling in this Mount Zion place. The prophet spoke of God's deliverance coming to Zion, Isaiah 59 and Zechariah 9, and Israel being preserved in Zion. The biblical assertion that God laid the foundations of the city of Jerusalem on Mount Zion was extended to the foundations of the glorified heavenly city as well. And so we see this image. Mount Zion is a physical representation of a covenant. Mount Sinai is a physical representation of a covenant. Old covenant, Mount Sinai. New covenant, Mount Zion. And ultimately, it's not that we are striving to get to a physical location in Mount Zion in that way. It's more of a picture of the heavenly realm that we are going to see in completion. It's a, it's a pilgrimage we are on. It's a we are in a part of his kingdom now, but not yet completely there until he renews it all. And so, so Mount Zion is this picture of of the new covenant and Mount Sinai is the picture of the old covenant. The old covenant has doom and gloom and darkness and burning with fire and a mountain that can't be touched, a trumpet blast and voice speaking words and, other, and all these things. The new one, Mount Zion, what does he say? He does, he does something brilliant. With seven descriptions of Mount Sinai, he goes to seven descriptions of Mount Zion. He says that the heavenly Jerusalem is the, the city of the living God, that thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. God is the judge of all people. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The sprinkled blood that, that speaks better than the blood of Abel. According to this, what we see is we see ultimately that God is, is, is giving us a picture of what the new covenant assembly looks like. So why here? Why does he do it right here in this text? And again, 
I think is brilliant because he's talking to a tired people. He's talking to an exhausted people. He's talking to a people that, have, that are starting to experience perseverance or, or, um, persecution and are needing to persevere. He's talking to a people that are, are about to, they're two years shy of, of the worst persecution in church history at that point. Like this is gonna be a really difficult season and he's trying to keep them fixated on a motivation that is profound and big. And that is that God is big and majestic and huge. And we see some very big pl- parallels between these two covenants. God is big. God is, is, needs a mediator, Moses the mediator. But we see one thing over and over again is that the Old Testament doesn't do, do away with the, the issue of sinfulness like the new covenant through Jesus Christ does. And so we see this, this profound picture going back and forth in each one. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to recognize, help people see the value and the beauty behind the new kingdom, the joyfulness that's there, the, 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 the peace that's coming. And it's, again, it's, it's a motivation and I, I understand that like some of you today, even you're just exhausted following the Lord. Even having to have some of the conversations you had in the last week, you're like, man, I have, I have not been able to get to a spot of just peace in this time or this season. I'm still waiting for rest. And what he's saying is, look, look, the kingdom is yours today, but it's not to its entirety. It's coming. Your kingdom is coming. The, the, the real kingdom that you're longing for is Mount Zion and its completion where everything's done and where there's an assembly, a festive, festival. It's a party. And what most of us walk through this world, most of us deal with is as we experience struggles, we call them faith crises or we wrestle in that way. But, but a lot of what happens as we wrestle with these things is we, we lose the joy. We lose the joy and we just start walking around with our head down and our shoulders slumped and we just, we just walk around kind of frustrated and bittered. God, I'm working for you. I'm just tired and I just want to be this way. And remember just before this, like don't like strengthen your knees, lift up your hands. The Lord is with you. He's doing a work. Don't lose sight of that. And here he, he, he brings out this image of a God who is massive and big and huge that every single Jewish person that day understood. And he, he enters him into a way that is still, I can guarantee they still wrestled with. I can guarantee a lot of us wrestle with this and puts God at a personal level. So this covenant isn't impersonal. It's not distant. It's not to be touched. Instead, it's a covenant that we are actually in the throne room of God, anchored through Jesus Christ, our mediator. God is personally after us. He's personally after you. He wants you as his child. He wants to be your father. He wants to graft you into the promise of Mount Zion where you can experience a party, a festival, an amazing thing. And that's the image he's giving here. Rather than experiencing the fear and the sense of distance experienced by Israel as it gathered to me, God, Christians now have come into a festive gathering at Mount Zion. And boldly enter into the presence of God and Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. So we don't, we don't have to stand at a distance. We don't have to be afraid that, that we can't be there. We can still feel immensely unworthy because we are, but Jesus deems us worthy because of what he's done for us on the cross. And so we can stand in the presence of God in spite of the sinfulness and the struggles we have. We can repent of those and watch Jesus' blood wash over us over and over and over again. And instead of a God as a distant, gloomy, someone to be feared that we're saying, please don't talk to us, please don't talk to us, we're drawn in relationally through Jesus Christ. He says, I want to have a conversation with you. Ask, seek, knock, come to me, talk to me more. This is a profound motivation for us to continue to persevere. This is a massive mind shift for us to not see God as someone whom to be feared alone, but instead that he is someone to be feared to live in a life of righteousness, to walk accordingly to the, the word that he has implanted in our hearts, the, to live out the righteousness that he's closed us in, to operate and do 
the very things that his word commands of us, not because we're afraid of what he may do to us if we don't, but because we're, we're amazed at what he's done for us through Jesus Christ, and we want to live in light of that. This is a, this is a really big deal. You have been grafted in, if you submitted your life to Jesus Christ, you've been grafted in to Mount Zion. And you get to experience aspects of Mount Zion here today, but it's never going to be its full fruition, not until he comes again. And this is what he talks about. When he says these things, he says the individuals that, you know, were the church, the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, he's saying, look, he's grafted in all children of God. The by faith, the old chapter, everything was completed through Jesus Christ. Yours and my faith is completed through Jesus Christ. We're no different than anyone in the Old Testament in that way. But it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone that we can walk in this world and live apart of his kingdom works and his purposes. And that is a joyful thing. And we've been saying this from the beginning. It's, it's really difficult for us to, to stay focused on God, even though he's, he's commanded us, he's asked us twice in this very short beginning of this chapter to keep our eyes fixated on Jesus Christ and stop looking at other things. But what he's trying to do here is he's trying to remind his people, look, guys, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, you're not of this world you are of a kingdom where it's a festival. It's a joyful thing. And my concern for us, and as I look at the scripture, and I could see that probably obviously the author has the same concern, is that, is that anyone that is outside of Christ in this text, if they are experiencing hardship and persecution and difficulties and trials, and recognizing even that some of the things that they're experiencing are because the Lord is disciplining them to, to bring about more holiness and more completeness, perfection in them, like seeing that, that would be a really easy thing to kind of just like head down, wallow in shame and not be really excited about things. And the, the issue is, is then what happens is, is as anyone else outside of Christ looks in at the community and goes, so what does it mean to follow God? Oh, that looks miserable. I don't want to be a part of that. Wait, you mean you like you just, you, just, you just basically live a life of complete misery for no reason whatsoever other than you're supposedly being made perfect? I don't want to be a part of that. And that I think is what happens to us is we stop walking in joy. We stop living out joy. We see our obedience to God's word as something that we have to do because we have lost the picture of Mount Zion and we've gone back to the Mount Sinai picture. That God asking us to obey is because he's where he's to, we're to fear him and there's a cloud looming over us that's bringing gloom and darkness as opposed to recognizing that when he says he's calling us to obey, he's saying, live in light of the fact that you are part. You've already reached Mount Zion. Not to its completion, but this is just who you are. This is who I created you to be. I created you to live obediently to my word, not because I'm some God that's meant to be feared, but because I want a relationship with you and I know what's best for you and it's for your good that I'm doing these things. So who are we calling people to? In our gospel communities, in our homes, to our children when we talk about making choices with our finances or our lives that, that maybe are contrary to the world? Is it a begrudging thing? All right, Lord, I'll do this. I guess if I have to. What are we calling people? Are we calling them some form of religion? A place of dread, a place from which God seems remote and unapproachable? Or are we calling him to a, a God who is very personal, very gracious? He's given us every spiritual blessing, as Ephesians 1 says. Not to be given, but he has given us in Christ Jesus. Are we, are we a people that actually follow through God with joy, recognizing that, guys, there's, there's a party coming? When was the last time in church or at your home, gospel community, that someone on the outside could have mistaken what was taking place for a party. I mean, I want, I want to be a part of that. You, you know, every church wants to be that Acts 2 church. Why? Because every single person looked at the way that they were giving of themselves to each other and said, I want to be a part of that. 
And they were giving, they were giving up everything they had. You think they're giving, oh, okay, here's everything. Well, we have some accounts of that, and they were killed in that end spot, but that's, we're not going to talk about that one, right? But most of the time, what was happening is, this, is there's this overwhelming sense of joy in being submitted to the Lord. And it was, a, it was a representation of the kingdom of God that's meant to be ours in the dwelling place of God through Mount Zion that will become ours in full fruition through Jesus Christ at the second coming, but we can experience today. And so this last week, I challenged you guys to spend time correcting your heart, working through relational struggles, battling through bitterness, have the hard conversations with someone despite what they may think of you. Do it in generous grace, humility. Don't, don't be frustrated with it. When someone confronts you, search the scriptures, search your heart, ask for God to reveal what needs to be done and really work on that. That was meant to be done. The author's saying this seamlessly right through with joyfulness. With joyfulness. Now, no one likes to be confronted. But when it's something in you that's taking away, that's not connected to Christ, we should, we should be striving for that. We should be joyfully looking to that. And us submitting ourselves to the Lord with our finances and our relationships and the way we do school and our, in our gospel communities and, and serving one another shouldn't be something that we do begrudgingly. It should be a joyful thing. Why? Because that is what it is, is created to be. Because that is what's going on. You and I, we aren't going to go to heaven and the first thing we always say, sit down. All right, Jesus, you need to explain these 12 things to me. I have never answered this. And, you know, we're, just tell me about the dinosaurs. Like, we're not going to spend any time doing that. We're going to join in the festive singing and praising of God and the fact that you and I are actually able to stand in the presence of God when we have no right to do it on our own. We're going to be enamored with the fact that the God that is not worthy to be, t- the, the hill that he's speaking through a cloud, not even present, is not worthy to be touched, yet we can stand in the throne room of God because Jesus Christ has anchored us there behind the veil. That's what we're going to. So when we live a life obediently to him here today, we keep our, our motivation fixated on the fact that there is a personal God in this. That God isn't just some distant being meant to be feared. He is a powerful being. Powerful God meant to be feared. But in that power, he has done the most amazing and, and ridiculous thing ever by sending Jesus Christ to die on a cross so that we can experience relationship with him in a personal way where he no longer looks down and talks to us through a cloud, but he sits down to us face to face and says, hey, come here, son, come here, daughter. No, no, what I'm doing right now is a good thing. I know what I created you to be. I know what you're supposed to do. I know how it's supposed to work. And this may hurt for a moment, but trust me, it's bringing about a holiness that you were created for. It's bringing about a perfection that I have, have started. And I will never break my promise. For us today, most of us today, this dichotomy, this, this gloom, dark, dark cloud-ridden place, and this profound festival, they just, they just fall flat on us. Because we don't, we don't see the, the importance, the value to, to what it really meant for us to, to recognize a God that isn't just this, but is this. He's, he's both and and in being both and, you and I have the right, surprisingly, to stand in his presence because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So he's giving them motivation. He's reminding them that this is a beautiful thing. Only on the new covenant mountain can one find holiness, forgiveness, and grace. We need not be in terror, terror of God's voice here. Jesus' blood speaks a good word on our behalf. Talking about Abel and, and his blood Abel is killed by Cain. His blood cried out to God for judgment. We see that in Genesis 4. Abel's blood bore witness against Cain, indicating his guilt. Christ's blood, on the other hand, 
This is why it's greater. Christ's blood on the hand has won our forgiveness. Crying out, crying out for the, the people of the new covenant are no longer guilty, having been completely cleansed of sin. This is why this rings louder. You, you and I, those of us that have submitted our life to Jesus Christ, we get to live for him today. That is an honor. That is a joyful, festive event. We, we talked last week, and I said we're going to take communion today. But I said last week, I, I challenged you that we're not going to take communion last week, and I wanted to push it to this week because I wanted to give you a week to make your hearts, to really, to really repent, to look at your hearts, to see if there was relationships that needed to be communicated through, if there was brokenness that needed to be, unity needed to be sought. And I challenged every single one. I said, make this a week where you don't just let that bitterness continue to defile your family and your community and this church, but let that bitterness be dug out. But despite how painful it may be, if there's someone that you know has something against you, then, then leave the altar in that moment and go make it right. Do as everything you possibly can, as far as it depends on you, to be at peace with everyone. Strive for the peace that he, the author was talking about. Well, why do we do that? Because that's what the kingdom is. This picture, this image, this brokenness, this battle that you and I are in, that we wrestle with people, and as we, as we rub each other wrong, or we misunderstand one another, or we confront one another, all of those things go away at Mount Zion. They become a non-issue because we have no longer have to deal with the fleshly sinfulness that's at war with the Spirit of God in us. And instead, we can submit ourselves entirely to it. And what the author of Hebrews is, is contending, he's saying, live that way now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. You can, you can approach that now. And so I said, we're going to take communion this week. And so often, as, as beautiful as communion, coming to the Last Supper, the table, the, the elements, whatever you want to call it, most often, we, we kind of just go through the motions on those things. We go to the table and say, yeah, I, I have a bunch of unforgiven sin. I have a bunch of unrepentant sins in my life, but oh well, drink up and eat some blood and hopefully this will help. And I challenge you specifically relationally to not do that this week. I said, spend this week making those relationships right so that you may experience a freedom that God freed you for. Stop carrying around this bitterness. Your bitterness defiles a home, defiles a community. The Apostle Paul, dealing with the Corinthian people, had the same thing in mind when he was talking about taking communion. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going we're to give you a chance to get up and go take it. I would encourage you to take it with your families or gospel communities or the individuals around you, but you can just lead yourself through it. And these, these elements are, are really just, it's just bread and juice. But, but it symbolizes something so much more profound than that. Something so much more valuable than just bread and juice. It, it, it does something incredible. It's something that Jesus instituted the night before he was, he was betrayed. The night he was betrayed, he institutes this before he's, he's on a cross. And he says, I will not partake of this meal again until we are all together, until all my family is together in the kingdom of heaven, which, which gives us this profound visual. Just, just see this for a second. There's a spot at the table in the kingdom of God with your name on it if you are submitted to Christ. He's, Jesus is up there literally while he's, he's praying for you on a daily basis, while every time you sin, he's in the throne room of God saying, God, don't look at that sin, look at me, my blood paid for that. He's a mediator, he's an advocate for us, and he's all the while saying, oh, Bren loves this, and I'm gonna set it this way, he loves it this way. I can't wait, I can't wait to feast with him because I know what I created him to be, and I can't wait until he's perfect in that. And then in that, we're gonna be able to be perfectly unified. And he's creating this banquet it's this feast for us, and it's a celebration. It's not a somber moment 
We don't walk in there with our head down going, I'm not welcome to be here. We walk in there boldly going, I am clothed in righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ and I can sit at this table not by anything I did, not by my own merit or worthiness, but because of what Christ has done for me. And in this world, while I'm waiting for that, I'm going to live in light of the Spirit of God and the commands that he gives us to follow in the word so that I can be more and more and more like the brand that Christ has created me to be. And he's celebrating up there. He's, he's, he's saving a spot for you. He's literally preparing it. He's like, oh, yeah, she, she loves these flowers. I'm going to set these flowers right there. Oh, she, she's never met this person, but they're across. I think they'd just be so great of friends. I'm going to put them right next to each other. He's up there preparing individually for each one of us, very personally, not as a God at a distance, but literally face to face. He's looking you right across the eyes, and he's going, I don't care what you did last night. My blood paid for that. I don't care if you said you weren't going to do it again. My blood paid for that. Say no. Now have the motivation. Live. And so when we go to communion, we're proclaiming not only what God has done for us, almost like the Mount Sinai, the sacrificial system, right? He's, he's not, we don't need to continue to, to bring an unspotted lamb to make right our sins anymore as, as the people of God. Instead, we have become righteous because of Jesus' blood. And so we proclaim the sacrifice, the abuse that Jesus' body went through, the whipping and the, the ripping of the flesh and his back being completely opened up. And as he's hanging on the cross and having to push himself up and get splinters in that open wounds just so he can get another breath of lung, air in his lungs, all of that physical abuse he did for you and me so that we could be personally connected to God, so that we could be in the throne room of God without falling and, and, and recognizing our, our sinfulness and being shunned out and having to be killed, so that we could stand in the presence of God, recognizing that we are still not worthy to be there, but because I've been clothed in righteousness, I am now deemed worthy, and I'm a co-heir with Christ, the Most High Kingdom. And so when we take of the bread, we're, we're proclaiming that that had to happen to Jesus' body for me. And then when we drink the juice, it's a, it's a symbol of his blood, the life that was in his blood that was spilled for us so that we can have life. It's what covers our sinfulness. It's what allows us to walk out of the grave with Jesus Christ so that we no longer have to stay in the grave and, and experience the sinfulness of our life. We can be free from the sins because it no longer holds anything over us because we can walk in freedom. And so when we drink of the blood, we, we, when we drink of the, of the juice, we, it represents the blood of Jesus that was spilled for you. And we're saying that had to happen for me. And we're proclaiming two things. We're proclaiming the sacrifice that Sinai needed and we're proclaiming the future that Mount Zion brings. We're not just proclaiming what Jesus did for us. We're proclaiming what he's gonna continue to do in and through us and for us, ultimately to us being in Mount Zion as a complete person, fully completed, without any blemish, presented before God, holy and spotless because of him and his work. And so when we go to the table, we, we, we go to it with an understanding that, that this is a big deal. This isn't meant to be done flippantly. This isn't something you just walked in and go, yeah, I don't care what I sin. I don't care how much I've sinned. I don't care how my life doesn't line up with the scriptures. I'm just, I'm just, some, I'm just some enlightened person that doesn't have to submit to this. You don't, you don't do that. That's, that's walking in an unworthy manner, which Ephesians tells us to walk in a worthy manner of the calling which has been put on us. And so we go to the table and we proclaim these things. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 26 was dealing with this in the Corinthian church. He's saying, look, he's, he's talking about a number of things that they've done wrong. It was just, just kind of a, a laundry list of things that they were struggling with in following the Lord. So he goes in and he says, but in following instructions, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. That's kind of a bummer to hear, right? Like, oh man. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together, it's not actually something better. It's for the worse. And this is this is what I think it looks like in the church today when we carry around bitterness. 
<laughs> this is what it looks like because what happens is our bitterness rubs off and it defiles community. And he says, he goes on and says, for the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He's saying, first off, above anything else, why are there divisions amongst the church? It's one spirit, it's one baptism, it's Christ alone, it's not me, it's not Apollos, it's not anyone. Why is there a division among the church? And yet every single one of us this last week, God maybe identified in us divisions in our heart, people that we were not at peace with that are, that are children of God. He says, why would you, why would you do this? There are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He's saying, like, look, you're going to have to separate to figure out who's genuine or not because there's so much division here. This is just out of control. And then he goes on and says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, speaking of communion, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? He's, he's saying this is, this is just like, why in, the, why in the world has this become such a simple ritual that you aren't dealing with the, the, the heart issue? Do you not know what this symbolizes? Do you not know what this means? How can you just walk around with unrepentant sin? How can you just be willfully, sinfully accepting the fact that this is just who you are and you're not in any way desire seeing the Spirit of God push on that and submit your life to the Scriptures? This is what you were created for. Why would you do that? And he goes, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And he goes on and says, for I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took, my, took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Don't forget. Don't lose sight of what I've done for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There's that new covenant language. There's that Mount Zion language. Not Mount Sinai. This is a new covenant. This is not a, a doomy, gloomy, darkness, God to be feared in this way. This is the same God that was present in the Old Testament, but it's a very personal God saying, look, drink of this. Drink of this. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink of this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim two things. The Lord's death, his work, in your heart, in your body, in your soul, to make you right before him until he comes again and completes everything that he promised to be complete in you. So the band's gonna come up and we're gonna, we're gonna worship. We're gonna worship in a number of ways. We're gonna worship in song. We're gonna worship through communion. And I challenge you, I encourage you, if you came today, God identified someone with you last week and you didn't do it, you didn't have the conversation, I, can't, I challenge you to walk out. Go call that person right now. Don't just keep moving forward as if it doesn't really matter because if you are not striving for peace, if you have something against someone, it's a bitterness in your own heart. And here's the saddest thing about that. It's just a power that's, that's, that's strongholding you. It's not affecting the other person. You think by, by holding back those feelings and holding back that conversation that you somehow have more power over them, all you're doing is giving that sinfulness of power over you. And so maybe it's not relationships. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something that needs to be confessed. I would, I would encourage you to confess to the Lord, maybe to someone that came with you, your gospel community, your spouse, and not just confess, but repent, and then take part in this. Some of you are here today, and you're like, man, I just, I don't, I don't think that that blood has actually covered me. Well, then now's the time. Let me, let me just say this. If you're here today, and you're, you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, or, or maybe you're kind of that that new crowd, the people that like to call the D-church, that like, I believed at one time, but there's so many things I don't like, and so you're, you're using ways to try and excuse away scriptures, whatever it may be. I, I don't believe you're here by accident. 
And I don't believe the struggles you're going through are an accident. I think God is disciplining you because he loves you and he knows what's good for you. And so I, I encourage you, I challenge you, I plead with you, submit your life to Jesus Christ. I challenge all of us if we are walking around with our heads hung low because we are being obedient to God in all these different ways, I challenge you to, to lift your head up. It's a, it's a festival going on. You need to join in the, the, the choir of the angels singing. There's a banquet awaiting you that is far greater than any good thing you'll ever experience on this earth. It's a motivation for us to live in light of the, 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 in light of the life that God created us to live. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you for giving us a way to be in relationship with you. And I think too often so many of us forget just how personal you are. How while we were still sinners, you died for us. While I was still making much of myself, defiling you, you sent your son to die for me so that I could be deemed righteous. God, forgive us for the ways in which we have um, defiled the community with our bitterness. Forgive us in the ways that we've lost sight of our ultimate pilgrimage, where we're headed. Forgive us for living a life that isn't true to that, that, that community that you've saved us for. God, I pray that we'd be a people that are just relentless about submitting our lives completely to you. God, I pray that the way that the Spirit has been stirring on each of us this week, I pray that you would stir harder if we're, if we're fighting you in that, God. God, again, like we prayed last week with open hands, I pray that anyone that's tried to close their hands over the week, I pray that you just gently open their hands and remind them that it's not about because you're a God in the distant that needs to be feared because we might come too close to you, but instead you've come right face to face with us through Jesus Christ and said, I want to look you in the eyes. I want to stare you in the eyes and, and, and all the pain and all the struggles you have done and all the things that are going on, I still love you. I still want relationship with you. And God, I pray for every individual to see you face to face and to not be overcome by the sinfulness that maybe they're holding on to, but instead be overcome by the joy that comes in resting in you. And so as we take communion, God, would you please, would you please allow this to be a table that we all come to fully repentant? Would you allow this to be a table that we come to where we have not forgotten what you've done for us, where we've not forgotten what you're gonna do for us and in us and through us? And ultimately, God, that we do this in remembrance of who you are and how good you are. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.